Well, good morning again, and if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians. Going to be in Colossians this morning. And as we, we talked a little bit last time, the book of Colossians is a, is a, is a great book. Well, they're all great, but it's a great book in dealing with the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's writing this book, the book of Colossi, a book uh, excuse me, of Colossians to the Colossian church. And he's doing it to combat heresy or false teaching that is creeping into the church. A lot of it is the syncretism that resembles the culture. Now one thing if you notice about the Colossian book is it's not like the Galatians where Paul basically says, thank you Lord for the Galatians. And then in verse 3, oh you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? you know, he just launches into Galatians. Um, now, that, that tends to help us to think about the book of Colossians in the sense that this was something that was creeping in. And we know that Epaphras, their pastor, traveled all the way to Rome to go and to try to help deal with this, this false theology that was, that was saying that you needed Christ plus something else, something of some greater knowledge or greater experience. And one of the things that's great is we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at. Um, Paul's characteristics of this Colossian church. Uh, I was um, just reading the other day, and the only reason this particular article even crossed my eye and made me stop is it was about uh, R.M. Williams' shoes. And uh, if you'd like more information, Bill, the one to see with that. But uh, I was reading this article about how they're getting ready to be sold. They, they're owned by a Chinese conglomerate. And if you've got a, uh, you know, some spare change, 450 to $500 million, you can purchase them. Um, and I was reading how Hugh Jackman is a spokesperson, and uh, he owns 5%, and so that's a hefty payday for him. Um, but it was interesting, as I dug in a little bit more, I had heard of R.M. Williams' shoes in the States. It was a little bit, even in the States, it's a little bit above my, uh, my pay grade, my, my price range. Um, so I decided to do a little research because I remember my conversations with Bill, and I found out some distinctives, some characteristics that, that make the shoe brand so uh, special, besides the fact they're produced right here in South Australia. Um, some of these characteristics are they're, they're still made, at least their boots are still made by hand. Uh, very few boot manufacturers still do that. They're made from a single piece of leather. It's very fine leather, and they're made uh, with, with great care and craftsmanship. You know, a lot of people try to imitate that, but that's something that you can't do uh, without lots of training. And so those are, those are characteristics of those shoes, and that's what makes them so special. And in case you're wondering, I looked it up, uh, a pair of R.O.M. shoes will cost you between $700 and $1,000 Aussie. And uh, in America, that's still pretty, uh, pretty expensive. Um, and so, but it's fine craftsmanship. And those are, those are the characteristics that set this brand apart. When Paul's letter to the, to the Colossians in verses 3 through 8, Paul gives a list of characteristics of the Colossian church. And now, if we just read this list, we, we have a tendency to say, oh, well, that's great. You know, that's special. It's a great list of characteristics. But the great thing about the Word of God is we can take these characteristics and in application we can apply them to the church in general. And so by applying those characteristics, we get to see what does a picture of a, a true church look like? Or what does a really good church look like or supposed to look like? We live in Adelaide, which is the city of, uh, city of churches 
or as many of you have uh, have said to me, it's the city of church buildings. Um, so, it, uh, in, in reality, but what are what are the distinctions? What are the characteristics of a good church? How do you tell if you're going to walk in the door? It's even worth your time. You go on holiday and you're you're visiting somewhere else. How do you how do you pick? You know, what church should I go to? And sometime in your life, you may move away from here and you're looking for a good church. Well, what are those qualities? What are those characteristics in a good church that you should even consider? And so as we look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 3-8, through we're going to see the characteristics of the Colossian church. And in looking at those characteristics, we'll be able to see some principles that we'll be able to apply in a general sense for us as well uh, even in these modern times. So let's go ahead and look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 3-8. through 8. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing even it has been doing in you since the day you've heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. And the great thing about that, it is one sentence in the Greek. So we are going to be looking at the characteristics of the Colossian church. The first characteristic that Paul points out and that we should really take, take, uh, take stock in is that you have to have a right understanding or the Colossian church had a right understanding of the Trinity, of the triune God. Look down in verse 2, starting with, he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father. But then in verse 3, he says, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 8, he says, He informed us of your love in the Spirit. In fact, this is the only reference to the Holy Spirit in the whole book of Colossians. So he starts out with them with pointing out in his writing that what they believe, the basis of their belief, the origin of their belief is in the triune God. Because that's what separates them. That's a characteristic that made them different from the Jews. It made them different from the Gentiles. Um, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, points out that, that the mind of man cannot come up with a three-in-one God. Right? It, it's too, too complicated, it's too high a thought for us to come up with. We wouldn't come up with something like this on our own. And he actually uses that as evidence, the fact that God is real. That, that He is something that man, the mind of man couldn't create on his own. Well, when you look, first of all, you look at God the Father. He says, not only do we grace and peace to you from God our Father in verse 2, but he says, we give thanks to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the unbeliever, God is not their Father. All right? Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6 says that let no one deceive you with these empty words. For because of these things, and he's talked about all these sinful acts before, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay? And then you have in John 3, John 3, 36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. 
But he who does not obey the Son of God will not see life, and the wrath of God abides upon him. So if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, God is not your Father. He is a God that is your judge. And He will judge the sin in your life. Okay? But the Father's wrath and justice had to be satisfied. And it was satisfied in the Son of God. Okay? So with the Father, He becomes our Father in the sense that we can address Him in that intimate way once we accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Right? Romans 8, 8 says that he, we can call Him Abba, Father. That's a term of endearment. Right? It, it's a term of a child. My, my, my daughter sits in my lap and she says, she says Dada. We can, we can call God Father in an intimate way because we have fellowship through Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1, it's just a great section. I encourage you guys to take a look at it. In Ephesians chapter 1, it deals with the work of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our salvation. In Ephesians 1, it says that the Father has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It says He's chose us... in Christ before the foundation of the world, that He's predestined us to adoption as sons or co-heirs. So He's adopted us, He's chose us, and He's blessed us. Then that leads us to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, this Lord Jesus is our Lord, and Paul says here, he says He's the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say just the, the, the Father of Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you that were here during the Easter message in Acts 2, Peter makes this case in his sermon that Jesus is not only Messiah, and that Messiahship, that, that Christship, the fact that He is the chosen Messiah, was authenticated excuse me, by the resurrection. And then he says, Peter says, that Jesus is Lord, or that He is deity, that He is equal with God, and that is authenticated by His exaltation to the right hand of God. That's Peter's argument in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, verses 22-36. And then Jesus' work in salvation is that He's redeemed us by His blood. He's the substitutionary sacrifice. Right? He's paid the price of the wrath of God that was poured up, should have been poured upon us, but instead was poured upon Him on the cross. We have forgiveness of sins. Right? And then we have the work of the Holy Spirit. It says that He, in verse 8, that Paul was informed of their love in the Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit testifies to the Son among unbelievers. The the Holy Spirit convicts in regards to sin and righteousness and judgment. If you're praying for unbelievers in your life, praying to people that that you know that don't know the Lord, pray that they're convicted of the sin in their life, their lack of righteousness, and pray they're convicted of the judgment to come because that's the Holy Spirit's role. The Holy Spirit is showing them that they need Jesus. If you don't understand that you're a sinner, why do you need salvation? Right? If, you're, if, you're in, if you're not drowning in the, in, the, in the pool or the ocean, why do you need a life raft? Why do you need a, a, something to help you? So the Holy Spirit convicts people of their sin. The Holy Spirit works in regeneration. Right? The Holy Spirit illuminates, it teaches. And 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says that the natural man does not understand and will not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Right? So the natural man on his own, Romans says that he suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. Right? So if you go to share the gospel with somebody, their natural response is to, is to not understand, 
to not accept and to suppress truth. That's the natural response. But that's where the Holy Spirit comes in. Comes in and it works in their heart, it regenerates, it, it illuminates. And then for the believer, it strengthens us in the inner man. It empowers us to what? To love, to live obediently. I had a discussion with a friend of mine. This was after college. We used to get together, a bunch of us that were friends in high school, uh, friends in, um, and we we would discuss things, just keep up with each other's lives, and it would be like a little bit of party. and And we were, I was talking to this one guy I was friends with, and I was talking to him about the gospel and how I'd become a believer. So I was sharing with him a little bit about Christ, and I was talking to him about how Jesus is God. And now he had a basic under, understanding of the Trinity, but he came back and said, "Jesus isn't God." And I said, "Well." You know, what about the Trinity, the, the Holy Trinity? I knew that it would that kind of shake up his mind in a second. He goes, oh, yeah, 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 you're right. While I was discussing that, his friend was sitting right beside him. And he said, well, he said, well what, about, what about Jesus, or what about Stephen in Acts 7, where he's, where he's standing before the, the Pharisees, and he said, oh, I see, the, I see the Son standing beside the Father. See, this guy was a Mormon. And he was, he, was, he was trying to make the case that Jesus wasn't equal to the Father. And I, and I looked at him, and I didn't have time for him, because I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody, and this is Satan trying to distract us and, and pull away the seed. And I just said, look, I said, you point out a passage where it has God the Father, God the Son, and if you read in the passage, it says Stephen is filled by the Holy Spirit. So you have one of the few passages in Scripture where all three are mentioned. And not only that, why do you think they stoned Stephen? They stoned him because he declared Jesus to be deity, equal with the Father. That's why he was stoned. And I said, look, I haven't got time for you. You're a Mormon. And I continued on with the gospel with this guy. Um, so one of the things you'll find out when it comes to heresy is most heresies deny either the deity or the humanity of Jesus Christ. So when you're thinking about, oh, is this organization, and I say that loosely, is this organization a church do they have a proper understanding of the Trinity? Right? The, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, right? they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They're not a church. Right? And this calls for discernment. Jehovah's Witnesses, JWs, they deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's more subtle. There's a group of people in the United States, a church is called the Oneness Movement. Uh, if you ever heard any music by Phillips, Craig, and Dean, um, they're popular worship music. They're part of the oneness movement. They're modalists. And if you want to know about modalists, um, you can ask Jordan. He's studying Christology right now. He'd love to tell you about it. Uh, but they, basically they believe that God just changes forms. There's, it's not a triune God that He's the Father and He changes to the Son and He changes to the Spirit, changes back into the, back into the Father and changes back into the Son. He just keeps changing forms, changing modes. Right? There's even a, a big, quote-unquote, church, I say that with quotation marks, in China called the Eastern Dawn. They do the same thing. There's a modalist kind of approach to Jesus. So without a triune understanding of God, then we don't have a real understanding of who God is. And Paul begins this by, by referencing the Trinity. Okay? So that's the first characteristic. So when you go into any kind of organization, is, do they have a proper understanding of the Trinity? We were driving by this church the other day, and I was just pointing out, I can't remember where we were at the time, I pointed out, look, look at that building. And I, I was looking at that church, and I looked at Beth, and I was talking more about the architecture. It was just this beautiful old you know, structure, who knows when it was built, maybe 1800s. And I looked at it, and, and Arden looks at me, and he goes, Dad, is that a church of God or a church of Satan? <laughs> and I looked at Beth, and I was like, oh, I don't know, actually. You know, Just because it says it's a church doesn't mean it's a real thing. So, 
So the first characteristic is you have to have a right understanding of the trying God. Then let's look down in verse 4. He says, since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. So the Colossian church, another characteristic is they, they had faith. They exhibited faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So they heard, what did they hear? They heard the gospel message and they believed, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 said, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved. It's what? It's the, it's the word of God. It's the truth, okay? So Hebrews 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's sheer trust in the power and grace of God for your salvation. And one of the great missionaries, John Paxton, as he went to the New Hebrides, or what is now called Vanuatu, he was trying to, to find a word, because he was translating the, the, the New Testament into their language, he was trying to find a word for faith, and he ended up coming across this one, he said this is perfectly encapsulates the idea of faith. He says, you lean on it with all your weight. So faith is you're leaning on it, you're trusting in nothing else. Nothing else but on Jesus Christ are you trusting, you're leaning, you're focusing on Him. And the object of that faith is Christ. We believe and we submit to His Lordship and Him alone. And what's interesting, he says you have faith in Christ and nothing else. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's an exclusivity for Jesus Christ and our faith towards Him. Now, one of the temptations for these believers and what's, what's happening to make Paul write this letter is that these false teachers are coming in and saying that not only do you have to have faith in Christ, but you have to have more. You have to have more. You have to have a, uh, not only faith in Christ, but you have to have a, a, some kind of religious experience. Or you have to have some kind of philosophical understanding. Or you have to have some kind of higher knowledge that makes you more. In other words, makes you a, a better Christian, a mature Christian. A, that You can just add the adjectives on top of that. But Paul starts out and says, look, you have faith in Christ. He said, we've heard of it. He's giving thanks to God for their faith. Right? I used to go fishing with my dad off the coast of North Carolina in this intercoastal waterway that there are barrier islands in North Carolina. You go to the beach and the beaches were on islands. On the, the right side, if you could imagine a picture of a map, the right side would be the Atlantic Ocean. The left side of the island would be this, this saltwater sound. And so you'd catch saltwater fish, but in a kind of a lake setting. You're protected. They're called barrier islands because they form a barrier from the elements, barrier from the waves. And so we were fishing, and we'd go fishing all the time. I love fishing with my dad. And, and always, one thing I always loved, I don't know why, it was just interesting to me as a kid, is I love throwing the anchor. Throwing the anchor overboard. You know, it was just amazing to me that this, this little bitty anchor could hold this big boat into place. You throw it overboard, you watch it, and you lose sight of it, and it's gone. Um, but what's interesting about the anchor is it's not really the anchor that's holding the boat, right? The anchor attaches to something on the bottom, rock or dirt, or if it's, you know, it has to be strong enough to hold the boat. So the anchor is attached to something. And you see, that's the idea of faith. Right? It's, not the, it's not the faith, our faith that saves us, but it's what our faith is attached to. Right? We have faith in Christ alone for our salvation. Right? He is the, if Hebrews says He's our soul anchor. He's the anchor that holds us in the holy of holies. So our faith is in Christ Jesus. 
John 1.12 says, But as many who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so it's important that Paul thanks God for these believers' faith because it's a subtle way of reminding them that their, their trust is in Christ and in nothing else. Later in Colossians 2, Paul warns them against trusting in philosophy and tradition and religious activity and mysticistic experiences. The foundation of their new life is faith in Jesus Christ. So when you're, when you're looking at a church, you want to say, well, is Christ the foundation? Is there a desire, as Paul puts it, to know nothing among them except for Jesus Christ crucified? Right? You have to be careful of organizations that promote a religious system as a way of knowing God and pleasing Him. And that's what cults do. Cults, you have to do something to earn God's favor, earn God's grace. To have a relationship with God, you have to do certain things. Right? When reality, the Bible says, what do we do? We submit. We believe in Jesus Christ. For the fact that He has sacrificed Himself, that He's paid the price for our sin. It's belief. It's about belief, not works. Okay? So be wary of any religious organization that promotes a way of pleasing God apart from faith. And that would be something like a, like a monk. Like, you know, a monk is an ascetic, somebody who's a monk, they're an ascetic practice designed to, to gain some kind of spiritual enlightenment, whether it's quote unquote inside the Christian church or outside the Christian church. Or maybe it's uh, a, lot of, a, a lot of the charismatic movement says that we have to have some kind of religious experience in order to, to achieve a right relationship with God. It's about your faith, right? It's about your faith in Jesus Christ. So the Colossian church had a right understanding of the Trinity. They, have, they, have, uh, they exhibit faith. Those are two different characteristics. They also have a, have a great love. They demonstrate love for the saints. Look down in, in verse 4 as well. It says, it says, the love you have for all of the saints. So when it says love here, it's talking about agape love. There's different forms of love in Greek. Uh, there, there's eros, which is kind of a, a sexual love between a husband and a wife. There's nothing wrong about that love. It's an expression within marriage alone. There's philodeo, which is brotherly love. We have a lot of us. We, we have brotherly love for each other, right? We have it's a, it's a relationship kind of love of, of companions. Of it's mateship. You know, we both can get something out of it, right? And then there's, there's agape love, which is the, the highest form of love that, that is exhibited by God alone. And you say, well, how can we exhibit it? Well, we exhibit it, verse 8, in the love in the Spirit. We, we exhibit it by the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Now, the definition is a commitment empowered by the Holy Spirit to act in a self-sacrificial way regardless of your own personal feelings. Someone say that again. It's a commitment empowered by the Holy Spirit to act in a self-sacrificial way regardless of our own personal feelings. So it's demonstrated. It's a, it's a relationship with others that demonstrates we have a relationship with God. So the vertical, our vertical relationship with God is demonstrated in the horizontal, right? So it's a testimony to the world. Right? When we act in a way that is sacrificial, expecting nothing in return, then that's a testimony. Because the world doesn't act this way. People always, even, even altruism in its, in its purest sense, is people in their, in their motives are still wanting something in return. 
right? Ultimately, it's the, it's the recognition that they get, which is self-inflating pride, but it's, it's I'm doing something for somebody so I can get something in return. Well, agape love is, is caring enough about meeting someone's needs that, that it's a sacrifice for you. Josh, the other night, delivered a table to my house. He was dead tired. It was right after work. It was 6 o'clock. He hadn't eaten supper yet and, uh, or dinner. And he delivered the table to my house. That's sacrificial love, right? There's something he went out of his way, right? We serve each other as we're able, right? We, we care enough about each other that we're willing to get involved in each other's lives, right? I, I can't meet with each one of you every day, every week. Right? But one way that I can minister to you is giving you what you greatly need. And that's the Word of God. I sacrifice my time, sacrifice my effort. It's not about patting myself on the back. I'm just giving you an example. We, we sacrifice what we have for others in a way to, that's going to serve them best. It's not just kind of a, a sentimentalism. I'm going to come over and put my arm around your shoulder. And go, I love you, brother. I love you, sister. It's, it's love is always in Action. It's an action verb, right? Like patient, kind, right? It's, it's those things that we, we demonstrate it in what we do, right? It's not just a, a simple emotional attachment. That's easy, right? We, we, we don't mind serving people we have an emotional attachment to. I don't mind, I mean, I might serve my wife, my kids, my mom, you know, I have that emotional attachment to. But can you attach some? Can you serve somebody in the church that, that you don't have an emotional attachment to? Maybe you, know, you don't have the same interest. Maybe their personality is a little bit different. You remember Ephesians 4, we, we put up with people in love, and that's literally in the Greek, putting up with, tolerating people. See, people that have quirks, right? Not everybody is the same, but we love that person. We, we want to meet their needs. And, and, and not just from a... Uh, a financial sense. We always think of, I'm going to meet somebody's need financially. Maybe it's just somebody to talk to. Maybe it's, it's helping around the house, right? Our, uh, one of the churches I was involved in, I was in college, um, was a college ministry for, for seasoned citizens. I don't like the word senior. I like seasoned because they have a lot of life experience, right? Seasoned citizens. We had, we had a ministry to seasoned citizens in which we, we, we challenged the college students to be involved in their lives, to, to, to make weekly visits if they could, to, to see if there's anything they needed. You know, mowing the grass, the lawn, dishes, just being there to talk with them, right? To help them. It's sacrificing. I mean, I'm sure college students, those of you that are college students, uni students, younger students, you, you, you could do a lot of other things with your time, right? They were willing to sacrifice their, their time for others, right? So the question for us is, are you serving someone who has a great need? Paul says here that these believers, that they were, they were demonstrating a love, an agape love for all the saints, not just those people that they felt close with, but not a select few, not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles. They were showing their love for all the saints. The Greek word there is very specific. It's all. It's not a one missing. There was no favoritism. It wasn't about, I'm going to serve somebody who's wealthy because, I, hey, they can, del- they can donate a lot of money to the church, or I'm going to serve someone because I really like them. They, they were willing to serve others without a thought of anything ever in return, right? 
And you notice he says saints again. We talked about this the last week. The saints isn't that special class of people. It's not, well, I'm going to act really good, quote unquote, and I'm going to be a special Christian, right? A saint is every one of us. The word in Greek is hagias, or holy ones. And you're holy because you've been set apart, right? You think about God, He's holy, holy, holy. He's absolutely separate from His creation. He's totally unlike anything. When you, something is declared holy, it's, it's set apart like Him. It's set apart for His use. So we're saints in the sense that we've been set apart. But every one of us is saint, is a saint. Excuse me. Right? There's not, it's not less like Steve is a saint. Right? Everybody is a saint. So we're, we're, we do not make distinctions with our love. And that's what these believers weren't doing. They, they were being faithful to, to love everyone. He says they have a love for all of the saints. Right? So the danger with false teaching, the danger when you go into, into churches is you, you don't see this love demonstrated. I, I've been in organizations, quote-unquote, I've been in buildings that you, you go into and it's, it's just a, it's a dryness there. They, they, they may even say they have right theology, but there's no love. There's no care about anybody else. It, it's, a, it's a legalistic mindset where if you don't follow a series of a set of rules then you're, you're not a believer. We know what makes us a believer is faith in Christ, and that faith is demonstrated in our love. Paul continues, and he says, not only do you have faith, you have love. Another characteristic, he says, it's because of the hope that you have in heaven. Now, he says this, when we think about hope, we, we kind of have a hope, or we kind of have it in a, it's kind of subjective sense, like, oh, I, I hope it doesn't rain, or I hope it does rain, or I hope... That port wins another game. You know, it's kind of a hopeful thing, a wishful thing. You know, I um, you 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 think about hope. It's 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 based off of circumstances. Oh, I you know I hope that um, my car doesn't break down. You know, it's you know 20 years old. I hope um, from a biblical standpoint, this isn't hope. Hope is a confidence, assurance in the promises of God. Right? Our hope that we have is not subjective. It's based off of objective truth that doesn't change. Right? I, I love First Peter. When it comes to comes to hope, and we, we talk about this, we've been we've been going through First Peter in our Bible studies and, and uh, like I said, I just love First Peter chapter one. It says, um, let's see, uh, bless, let's start verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is that living hope. We're going to attain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, which will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Right? So we have an inheritance. Right? We have an inheritance that's reserved in heaven for us. We have the promise that we are going to be glorified like Christ, that we're going to be able to spend all eternity with Jesus. And when we live our lives, when you have that as your focus, as your orientation, then it's not a big deal to show love to others. It's not a big deal to sacrifice for others. Right? Your faith in Christ grows as you what? As you study and you learn the promises of what God is going to do for you. Not only what He has done, but the promise of what He's going to do. Right? So we're resting in those promises. I read on a sign the other day, and please 
don't misunderstand me, I'll clarify in a second. But it says that hope was hang on, pain ends. Hang on, pain ends. Acronym for hope. Okay? Right? I've seen that on memes on the internet. I've seen it on different signs. Different organizations use that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's a, that's a bad saying because a lot of that you'll see that on like suicide hotlines. And it's good to try to encourage people to realize that they have uh, an option to speak to someone if they're considering that. Um, but that, that's, you think about it, it's like a cat poster, right? Hang on, pain ends. It's just appealing, saying, look, these circumstances will change, don't worry. Right? True hope is not based on circumstances. Are you going to say hang on pain ends when you've got someone being led into the lion's den or, or got someone led into the, to the arena to be sacrificed for Nero and his, and his uh, perversions? To be lit, Christians who were lit on fire as they were lit, going into the uh, Roman arena, they were lit on fire as torches for Nero's naval battles that would happen in a Roman Colosseum. Are you going to tell someone hang on pain ends? sounds kind of trite. What you're going to say is have hope in the promises of Jesus Christ. That yeah, the pain is temporary and it will end and then guess what? You're going to be forever in the presence of God. Right? That's, that's, that's the hope that we have. The driving force behind our lives. Right? A whimsical hope is, is ever-changing with the world giving, given whatever we may face. Right? It's a circumstantial hope but our hope is based on the promises of the Word of God that God has given to His people. So these Colossian believers, they're showing hope. And this hope is, is demonstrated by their love, their growing faith. Right? They, they, they were focused on the future and not on the present. They were fully confident in what God had promised would come to pass. And he says, not only do they have a hope, he says, the hope laid up for you in verse 5 in heaven. It's reserved. God has done it. He secured that hope. One of the things we forget about as Christians, um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that there's a beam of judgment seat for us. Right? It's not a judgment to determine whether we're going to get into heaven or not, but it's a judgment to determine what we deal with our life. Right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 that it's, it's for a steward or a servant to be faithful. Right, there's rewards based on how we lived our lives as Christians. Did we, did we live our lives for the now, or did we live our lives for the future? Right? We, Romans 8, in fact, I want to turn there. Romans 8, I love this passage. Romans 8, 18. <clears throat> Paul says this, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the ancient longing of creation waits eagerly for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The whole point of this is... Paul's saying here in Romans, he's saying, look, the sufferings of this present time aren't, aren't worthy to even be thinking about the glory that awaits us in the future. And he even says that creation is longing for the day when the sons of God will be glorified with Christ. You see, we, we live our lives based off of what we have in the future, our hope, right? Are you willing to say, hey, I'm, I'm going to, 
pay now and get later. You think about a credit card, right? We all have credit cards. Think about a credit card. The idea is, well, I can, I can get it now and pay later, right? Ultimately, that's what a credit card is. You're, you're, they've given you a line of credit, and you have to pay back at interest. So you get it now and pay later. For the Christian life, we pay now and we get it later, right? That's the Christian life. It's, it's our hope. Right? So one of the things I, I was reading, for those of you that I encourage you to read uh, uh, the biography of John Paxton, and I was thinking as I was reading about him, he, uh, he spent, he basically poured out his life in ministry, evangelistic ministry to the islands of the New Hebrides, renamed that way by John, Captain Cook. You guys may know who Captain Cook is. And he, uh, he named those, and those, obviously, they're the islands now, they're Polynesian islands. Vanuatu is one of them. But he poured out his life. He got there and he lost his, his wife and his newborn baby to malaria pretty quickly on. He served another 10 years there ministering with very little fruit, was chased off the island by cannibals, ended up coming back with his new wife after spending time in Australia, and he spent years and years and years in this island. He ended up translating the New Testament into their language. He spent his life ministering his people. And a large part of his ministry and a few others, you have these islands today, these Polynesian islands, that are predominantly Christian. But before he got there, they were predominantly cannibals. In fact, the first couple missionaries that landed there were killed and eaten by cannibals. And in when, when uh, John Paxton expressed his desire, he's in England, he expressed his desire to go to these islands. Uh, one of the elders in this church, uh, Mr. Dickinson, said, well, why are you going to leave the ministry your own to go bit eaten by cannibals? And I love his reply. He said, Mr. Dickinson... You are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. But I confess to you that I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, and it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms, and in the great day my resurrection body will rise and will be as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. What a great response. We're going to either die and be eaten by worms, or I'm going to be die and I'm going to be eaten by cannibals, but either way, it doesn't matter. Because ultimately, my hope is in Jesus Christ. You see, we live for the next life, not this one. And that's, that's a characteristic of these believers. They, they, they had as their focus their future hope. So we have these characteristics. We have, they had a right understanding of the, the Trinity, the triune God. They had a demonstration of their love for the saints. They had um, a demonstration of their faith and growing faith in Christ. They had the future as their heavenly focus. And then they responded to the gospel, truth. Look in verse 5. It says, Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. Verse 6, which has come to you just in all the world, also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as been doing in you since the day that you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, verse 7, our fellow bondservant. So they heard of the word of truth. They heard of the gospel. They, they, the, excuse me, the proclaimed truth is the unveiling of the real state of affairs. One thing I've said over and over, and I will keep saying it, because repetition is the key to learning, and the key to learning is repetition, is that truth is the reality as God sees it. Right? When you think about truth, 
right? In this world, it's the way that things really exist according to God. In the world, you go into a museum, and I've been in a museum, and when you take your kids in there, it's kind of like, oh, Daddy, look at this, look at this dinosaur. What, is this, what does this little plaque say? Well, son, it says that they found this dinosaur in a bunch of dirt, and it was founded um, many years ago, right? Because it's going to say 800 million years ago, right? Uh, just, well, you know, it was found uh, thousands of years ago, right? Because that's the reality of things. The world has its idea of what is reality, but we know what real, we know what reality is. Right? That's truth. God has revealed to us that He created the world. It wasn't created by blind chance over millions of years or a process of called evolution and natural selection. Right? The world didn't by happenstance come into being. Right? We aren't animals. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. Psalm 8 says that we were created a little lower than angels, but one day we will be higher than angels. Paul says that we will judge angels. Right? We are not animals. Right? And that makes a big difference, right? If we're, if we're not animals, then you can, we're, we're made in the likeness of God. So it, it changes everything from education of children, right? To how, how you live your life, how you treat other people, whether or not you abort babies. Are the Nazis, you kill millions of people, you have the right understanding of reality. Right? If they responded to the truth. So in a synchronistic society, which tries to meld everything together, truth matters. Right? And that's the point Paul's making here. He says, you heard the word of truth. In verse, or he turned the word of truth in verse 5, and then he said, you understood the grace of God in truth. Because as he's going to go into more detail, and as we're going to go more detail later in the book of Colossians, the truth matters. Because why do we call false teachers false? Because they're, they're presenting something that is false. It's a false definition of reality, or a false definition of the truth. And one of the schemes of Satan is that he will he'll like to come alongside and he'll present falsehood as close to the truth as he can. It's interesting, as, uh, as Steve's going to enlighten us as he would go through the book of Revelation, one of the things you have in the book of Revelation with Satan is you have a false trinity. Right? You have the prophet, and you have the beast, and you have Satan representing a, a false, trini- false trinitarian view of who God is. Because Satan wants worship. Right? Satan copies the things of God because that's part of his schemes. But we understand the reality of how we live, of what God's uh, what God's position is in regards to man, our condition, our origin, our need for salvation, our future destiny. Okay, and these believers heard the truth and they accepted it. One of the things that, I, that um, I, as I'm not familiar with the Australian uh, Treasury system, I'm giving you an example um, that I like from the U.S. Treasury. Uh, one of the things they do with U.S. Treasury agents. And these are the agents that go out and investigate counterfeit bills and, and people producing counterfeit money. Is they don't go through and they don't give them a list, a printed sheet of paper, or pictures of, of counterfeit money. What they do, they take them through an intensive, like two week course where all they do is study U.S. currency. They, they learn what every part of the currency is, what it's made of. They learn every particular point that sets it apart from every other bill in the world. And they basically study what's true so that they can recognize what's counterfeit. Right? And that's 
how it is for us as believers. We study what's true. Now, we can study false religions, and I think it's important to understand those things. But when you really know the truth, you can recognize what's false. You go into an organization and they say, well, Jesus isn't God. Well, ding, 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 we know that's not right. Why? We know because Jesus claimed to be God. Right? I and the Father are one. Right? Why do you think they stoned Stephen to go back from that? Earlier example. So when you think about the truth, you think about reality as God sees it. And not only did they accept the truth, but he said it's been spreading around the world. It came to you and it's spreading. The truth is spreading. The gospel goes forth. This is in the predetermined plan of God. Right? See, those they, they responded to the truth of the gospel and they were saved. And Paul's, Paul is emphasizing this truth again just because he's going to be dealing with so much falsehood later. And not only does he say, look, there's an inherent truth of the gospel, there's also the reality of their experience. In verse 6 it says that it came to them, it was bearing fruit and increasing. So the gospel is truth, and it, and it was growing, it was bearing fruit. That idea of bearing fruit here is it's in the middle voice. The gospel itself was bearing fruit in the lives and the hearts of individuals. So the idea of bearing fruit is it was, it was an internal change. Because that's what the gospel does. When we, when we accept Jesus Christ... The Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. It, it changes us from the inside out. We're giving a new heart to understand the truth of Scripture, to obey God. It's an internal transformation. Right? And then he says it's increasing. It's an external addition. So the, the growth of the Gospel is that it internally changing us, continually changing us, and it will be. It's called sanctification until ultimately we're glorified with the gospel truth, the scripture. And then not only that, but it, it adds additions to us. As we go out into the world and as we proclaim the truth, and we proclaim Christ, and we call people to repent and believe, right? Through the working of the Holy Spirit, they come to know Jesus as their Savior. And guess what? We have additions. That's the way it's worked from the very beginning. Picture this. This is, this is New Testament early church, right? We're here because of, the, of their faithfulness, right? The faithfulness of the Apostle Paul, the faithfulness of these believers sharing the gospel with their friends, their family, their co-workers, who in turn accepted Jesus Christ, grew in grace, and shared the gospel with their friends and family and co-workers, right? It's an unbroken chain that goes back to the apostles and their ministry, so the gospel has gone out to the whole world. And he means it here, not, not in the sense of the literal world at that time, but he's making a general exaggerated statement saying, look, the gospel's going everywhere. So they accepted the truth. The reality of their experience is they're, they're growing, they're, they're bearing fruit. And then not only do you have that, but you have the, the Spirit's work in them. Notice it says that, verse, uh, excuse me, notice it says in verse 6 that they heard and understood. You see, they heard that God providentially provided the opportunity for them to hear. When you think about the gospel, guys, I don't want you to feel a weight in the sense that, oh, I have to share the gospel so somebody gets saved. Right? Now, they do have to hear the gospel to be saved. Right? But God might not save them by your direct interaction. And let me explain that for a second. So, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, he says that, he said that, he said some water... Some plant, some water, and God gives the increase. He's using himself and Apollos as examples in the lives of the Corinthians. So some of us, we go out and we share the gospel and we're planting the seed. And then later on, somebody comes later and they share the gospel, right? And they, they reaped 
the benefit of that. Holy Spirit's working in that person's heart. I think in my own life, the Sunday school teachers that, that were planting the seeds of me, in, in my heart by teaching me the Word of God when I was a child didn't, didn't actually bear fruit until later on when I was in uni. And I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. Right? So when you think about the Spirit's work, you know, He not only providentially ordains that you hear the Gospel, truth, then He opens your heart and your mind to understand. The word for understand is complete and full knowledge by experience. Okay? The great passage on this, if, if you'd like to study it more, is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Basically, verses 8 through the end of the chapter talks about that the Spirit reveals the things of God. Right? The Spirit searches all men and He, he re- reveals the things, um, the mind of Christ. Right? That we can't understand things on our own, but it's the Holy Spirit that, that helps us to understand. So these believers, the Colossian church, they responded to the truth of the Gospel. The inherent truth, because it's reality, it's the Gospel, and then, then the reality of their very experience. Right? So the Gospel was received in their lives, in their growth, they are transformed. If you go into an organization and are not preaching the truth of the Gospel, and they're preaching a false Gospel, and not a church. Paul actually says even more strongly in Galatians. He says, anyone preaches a gospel that is different than ours is anathema. The Greek word for anathema is God damned. They are damned by God because they preach a gospel that is a false gospel. JWs, Mormons, right? Just to name a couple. Right? They preach a false gospel. They are under the judgment of God. You go into an organization and it's not preaching the truth of the gospel. They are not true. They're not a true church. So the Colossians, they responded to the gospel truth. And the final thing is they, they had sound leadership. Look down at verse 7. He says, you learn it from Epaphras, beloved, faithful bondservant. Right? He says that they, he was a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. So they had teaching of biblical truth. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, he, he says he taught them the gospel. Right? Paul mentions truth twice. So not only did he teach them the, the bare bones of the gospel, but he taught them the full truth of the gospel. Everything from their origins, their need for a Savior, right? Christ's work, their, their destiny. And we know that because what? They have faith in Christ, they have love for each other, and they have what? They have a, a hope. Paphras has been faithful to teach them. In fact, in verse 7 it says that they are a faithful servant. The word here in the English is servant. That word, same word is used in verse 23. It says, Paul says, I was made a minister. And in verse 25, it says also that um, I was a, a, a minister according to the stewardship from God. So the same word in verse 7 is used in verse 23 and in verse 25 by Paul as a minister. So he was their minister. He was their pastor. And he said on our behalf, he, he is faithful servant on our behalf. He, he's been delivering the apostolic doctrine. Most scholars believe that Epaphras was sent out by Paul when Paul ministered in Ephesus. He was sent out to Colossae in the Lycus Valley because he was from Colossae. A better opportunity to evangelize a people is someone who's from that area. Talk about training native pastors. Someone who's from that area. And he knows those people. knows what they're struggling with. And he says, he, and they were, he was only, did he, did he have an attention to the truth? We had sound biblical teaching but he was their loving shepherd, right? He loved them enough that he got, he traveled 200K, 200 kilometers, 
from Colossae to Ephesus, got on a boat, traveled by boat all the way to Rome just to bring the news of what's going on with these people that he loves so much that he's having a hard time come back. He's, he's humble enough that he knows he needs help, and he loves them enough he wants to have an answer for them to these false teachers that are infiltrating the truth, or infiltrating the church with falsehood. He loved them enough. He, he showed them care as a shepherd. I love if you if you'll turn with me real quick. We're almost done. Turn me over to the end of Colossians chapter four, chapter four verse twelve. Just flip the page. For most of you, <clears throat> chapter four verse twelve. It says, Epaphras, who is one of your number, he's a bond slave of Christ Jesus. He sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and be fully assured in the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you, for those who lay to see and rock us. You see, Epaphras was a pastor. He taught them the word. He loved them. He showed them care. He prayed for them. He went out of his way to serve them. He earnestly labored for them. He prayed that they would show maturity and they would have assurance of God's will in their life. You think about service of men of God, you can't help but think about Paul in 2 Timothy 4. Paul says, I am poured out like a drink offering. A drink offering in, in the Old Testament is whenever you'd have a sacrifice, you'd pour wine, you'd pour a valuable drink, and you just pour it out on top of the altar. Right? It'd be something valuable. For in, the, in the world's eyes, a drink offering is what? A waste. That's the way the world would look at the Apostle Paul's life. It's just a waste. Right? But for those who, who are believers, it's part of the service of the Lord. Right? So Paul gave his life to the service of the saints. The world would say, oh, his life's a waste. Just, just pour it out on the ground. Right? Paul, Apostle Paul's a brilliant man. He says, you know, I've given my life as a drink offering. I give my life in the service of the saints, in the service of the truth. You know, we, we don't we don't follow men. We follow Christ. Right? One of the greatest sections of scripture, I love it, is in Acts 17 when the Bereans they examine the scriptures to see what the Apostle Paul was saying was right. right? That's the way I want us to be as a church. I want to examine the scriptures to make sure that everything that is taught here is according to the Word of God. It's not about me, it's not about Peter, it's not about Stephen, it's about the Word of God. Brethren, we, we have these, these characteristics. Um, and it's what they're known as. It's what this church was known as. When I was, uh, when I was in high school or, or college, as it's called here, um, there's these group of individuals, and they, they called themselves, uh, they were guys, they called themselves GGTF, and they were this, this group of guys, and um, uh, GGTF, I was part of this group, and GGTF stands for uh, God's Gift to Females. So they were a little stuck on themselves, as you can imagine, um, and as a group, they were terrible, they were doing stupid stuff, and they were arrogant and foolish and, oh. But individually, the guys were, weren't bad individually. Uh, one of the guys in particular, I got to be a friend of mine, at least uh, somewhat, and we used to talk about cars. I had a 66 Mustang as my first car. We were talking about rebuilding cars all the time. And, and 
and we developed a relationship. But you put them together with this other group, and this IQ dropped to some points. I mean, this group, they were, they were just known for foolishness and arrogance. They, they were characterized by these things. Brother, brethren, you are characterized by the company that you're in. Just like these believers, you were part of the group. We've examined the characteristics of the Colossian church, and those, those characteristics that describe this church are applicable for us today. You have to have a right understanding of the Trinity. You want to exhibit faith in Jesus Christ. You want to demonstrate a love for all the saints. You want to have a heavenly focus as your hope. You want to respond properly to gospel truth. And you want to be involved in a church that has sound leadership. Well, thanks be to God that we have this word. And we are not left on our own to figure this out. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this Colossian church. And in it, we can, we can see their faithfulness to you. We can see, Lord, just the characteristics that they exhibited that, that Paul heard and they demonstrated to a world without the truth. Lord, I thank you for the gospel that it is through the proclamation of the gospel that each one of us is here today. Thank you for the truth that you providentially provide an opportunity for us to hear the gospel and that you work in our hearts to understand and our minds, Lord, that we may obey and submit to our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for these brothers and sisters here today. Pray that we would exhibit continued growth in our faith in you, continued love for each other. Lord, help us to be focused on what our hope, our hope is in you what it really is. Let us not be enamored by the things of this world. Be willing to sacrifice our time, our energy, our finances for the future, for each other. Lord, I thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. God be with you.